Hello, everybody. Greetings and salutations. Welcome to episode number 184 of our Bible studies together. Today, we move along in uh, the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 18. Let's go ahead and dig right in. Uh, verse 1. One day, Jesus told his disciples a story to show that they should always pray and never give up. There was a judge in a certain city, he said, who neither feared God nor cared about people. A widow of that city came to him repeatedly, saying, Give me justice in this dispute with my enemy. The judge ignored her for a while, but finally he said to himself, I don't fear God or care about people, but this woman is driving me crazy. I'm going to see that she gets justice because she is wearing me out with her constant requests. Then the Lord said, Learn a lesson from this unjust judge. Even he rendered a just decision in the end. So don't you think God will surely give justice to his chosen people who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will grant justice to them quickly. But when the Son of Man returns, how many will he find on the earth who have faith? The lesson here seems to be fairly straightforward. Um, what Jesus seems to be teaching here is that we should constantly pray for deliverance in times of testing. All too often, we ourselves may think, or we may witness other believers become impatient and begin to doubt God, because so often people seem to treat God like a vending machine. I want this piece of candy. I want that piece of candy. Because I've prayed, I should have it now. But God is long-suffering with men. He's willing that none should perish. But he gives us these times of testing as the most valuable lessons that we need to learn about improving ourselves and, more importantly, improving the quality of our faith. If we love God only in the good times, how true is our faith? If we love God when we're almost completely bereft of hope, where the world's trials and tribulations, where the storms of life constantly hound us and wail upon us, but we still keep that faith, then our hearts become 
truer towards God. We must look at the history of man and man's relationship with God from the very beginning in the glorious garden that he created for Adam and Eve. How many times has man failed God? How many times has man punished God? (laughs) That came out wrong. How many times has God punished man? What I was getting at there is, well, the Tower of Babel, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, Noah's flood, time and time again. How long did God spend with his chosen people, the nation of Israel, out in the Sinai Desert? Forty years. And when Moses finally led them there, what happened? Do you know the story? Their fear kept them from entering the promised land. And that fear was not of God. That fear resulted from doubting God. Now, we happen to be alive a couple of thousand years later, and again, our very nation has failed God badly, and indeed the world is failing God. We must keep the faith. Sometimes it is so hard to do so. I shared just a very few of the things in my personal life that have tested my faith to a stretching point. But I I can't give up on God because I know in my heart He loves me. I know in my heart that I felt truly the touch of His Spirit when he healed me on the altar. And I pray that each of you grow your faith from communing with the Father in the Word so that your faith becomes strong enough to test the times that are coming in all of our lives. Okay? Next, Christ teaches a very valuable story. And it's interesting to note um, uh, the flow about prayer and this next lesson. I'll read it first and then, and then we'll talk about it. It goes back to the concept of quality of faith. And notice as we get into the story, uh, when Christ talks about the type of individual involved, Um, He uses a Pharisee as a reference again to show the quality of person that he's talking about. This begins in verse 9. Then Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was the Pharisee, 
and the other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I am not like other people, cheaters, sinners, adulterers. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give you a tenth of my income. But the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, O God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Now, here, this Pharisee was boasting of his own moral and religious attainments, okay? He, he bragged to God that he, tenth, or he tithed a tenth of his income. Now, remember our lessons that Christ taught us uh, in the last lesson. As a matter of fact, we are bondservants to Christ. We should not accept praise for doing what we are supposed to do. We do what we are supposed to do because we know how fortunate we have, we are to have a Savior and a God as righteous as we do. Christ teaches again and again that true servants have that spirit of self-humiliation and repentance. That is what is acceptable to God. Those who do what is right and good and true because it is right and good and true. Not because they desire praise. Not because they desire participation trophies. We do what is right because that is what ought to be done. We do not place ourselves above anyone else in terms of looks or money or accomplishment. If we really want to grade ourselves, we grade ourselves on the standard of Almighty God, who is righteous and perfect and pure. And when we do that, we realize that nothing we have ever done or nothing we ever could do could ever measure up to the standard of our Yahweh, our almighty God, El Shaddai, Eye, Asher, Eye.
Adonai. Nothing. We must adopt the attitude of self-humiliation and repentance so that we learn to humble ourselves and teach ourselves just how much improvement we all need. And when we do that, the path to righteousness becomes just that much more clear. To teach this lesson just a little bit more clearly, Dr. Luke follows up with this story. Verse 15. One day, some parents brought their little children to Jesus so he could touch and bless them. But when the disciples saw this, they scolded the parents for bothering him. Then Jesus called for the children and said to the disciples, Let the children come to me. Don't stop them. For the kingdom of God belongs to those who are like these children. I tell you the truth, anyone who doesn't receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. What does a child have? Unlimited faith in the parent. What does a child have? Humility. As a matter of fact, people often ask, what happens to a child when they die? Well, right here, Jesus Christ gives us the answer. The kingdom is theirs. You see, children don't need to become adults in order to be saved. But adults need to become like children in order to be saved. We need the simple faith and humility that a little child has. Picture in your mind a mother and a child getting ready to cross the street. The mother says, Hold my hand, darling. And the child instantly raises their hand to the mother, and they cross the street together. This is the attitude adults need in their hearts in order to accept Christ as their Lord and Savior. Raise your hand to Jesus. Let him guide you. Have the humility and faith of a child. Let him guide you across the street to the kingdom of heaven. To expound on this idea, uh, Christ teaches us another lesson here. Uh, This lesson is about how a man would not receive the kingdom of God as a little child. Verse 18. Once a religious leader asked Jesus this question, Good teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? 
Verse 19. Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. Only God is truly good. Now, what what Christ was trying to do with that statement, uh, he wasn't trying to deny that he was good. Uh, He was trying to get the ruler to confess this fact. Because if Christ was good, then he must be God. And then Christ continues. Verse 20. But to answer your question, you know the commandments. You must not commit adultery. You must not murder. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely. Honor your father and mother. Now, what Christ did there uh, is he recited uh, five of the commandments that have to do with our duty to our fellow man. You see, we all know that uh, eternal life is not inherited. They, at the time, believed that. We know that life is not gained by doing good works. Okay? Now watch where Christ goes next. The man replied, I've obeyed all these commandments since I was young. Now, (laughs) uh, well, let me continue before I expound. Verse 22, when Jesus heard this answer, he said, There is still one thing you haven't done. Sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. But when the man heard this, he became very sad for he was very rich. Now, the reason I was laughing there is uh, the man claimed to have kept the commandments since he was a child. We all know that's simply not possible. What the man was doing there is again showing the attitude of a Pharisee. You see, that's why Christ highlighted in the next verse, sell all your possessions. If this man truly had loved his neighbors, truly loved his neighbors as themselves, he would have already sold all his possessions and distributed them to the poor. What Christ was doing was highlighting that this man was living a selfish lie. He had no real love for others. Uh, We know this. The proof of this is that when he heard Christ's response, he became sorrowful. Okay? The sorrow was him realizing his selfish nature. Now, what does Christ do next? Verse 24. When Jesus saw this, saw the man's uh, sorrow, He said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, there's a lot of people that try to take that statement way the heck out of context and 
stretch it to fit their own desires. Uh, I'll tell you a secret here, and that is if you look at the original words as they are translated, the word that Dr. Luke uses here specifically means a surgeon's needle. Okay? So if Dr. Luke uses the words a surgeon's needle, we can take the Lord's statement at face value. Okay? In other words, it is just as impossible for a camel to go through the eye of a needle as it is impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Okay? Now, what does that mean? If a man maintains his wealth and places his faith in his wealth instead of God, that means he is not broken before God. Okay? If you let your wealth stand between yourself and your soul's salvation, you cannot be converted. Okay? How many billionaires do you see humble themselves truly before God? How many mega, mega millionaires do you see humble yourselves before God? There are some millionaires that profess to have the faith. But if they really did, do they love their fellow man as themselves? Are they doing all they can with their wealth to help every poor person that they can? Are they sheltering poor people in their homes? Are they doing everything they can to lift up the downtrodden into having a life of relative comfort, of food, of clothing, of shelter, of health care? You see, there's many people that run around, I believe in God, and they go around and drive a Mercedes model, whatever the best model of the Mercedes is. And they convince other people that they believe in God, but they're not fooling God. You see, there's it's so easy for people to be fooled by the lies of others. I know, well, I can't give you examples, but I know people that just go around telling lie after lie after lie after lie, and people believe it. And it, it breaks my heart. It really does. It's it's one of the most difficult things for a man who isn't truly saved to do, or a woman, a person. When I say man, I mean man and woman. That's the language that God uses. That's the language that Christ uses. So that's the language that I use. Uh, I mean a human being. Man was created by God. Woman was created out of man by God. Uh, quite simply, it is one of the most difficult things that a human being can do is truly humble themselves enough to God to truly repent 
so much that the Word begins to open itself to you. And I mean this as sincerely as I possibly can, that the more you humble yourself before God and open your heart before God and read the Word and commune in the Word, the more the truth of the Word opens to you. It's almost, all it is, it's not almost, it is truly astonishing how the truth of the Word opens itself to you. You can't go around and talk about the Word with other people and pretend that you know the Word and just go through the motions. You really have to open your heart. And that's the key. And the key is humility. Humbling self. Humbling yourself before God. That's the only way. You have to put the word first. You just have to. Otherwise, all you're doing is reading the words or hearing the words, but you're not understanding the truth. Okay? Verse 26. Those who heard this said, Then who in the world can be saved? He replied, What is impossible for people is possible with God. Peter said, We've left our homes to follow you. Yes, Jesus replied, And I assure you, that everyone who has given up house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will be repaid many times over in this life and will have eternal life in the world to come. Now, when Christ says, um, uh, where is it here? Just lost my place. Yeah. We'll be repaid many times over and we'll have eternal life in the world to come. This part where he says we'll have eternal life in the world to come. What he's saying here is not that if you give up everything in this life. And what Christ is talking about is literally giving up everything. If you give away everything you have and you go on a missionary journey somewhere where uh, people... Uh, are not aware of God, of the salvation of Jesus Christ. If you give up everything in this life for the rest of your life and you go on a missionary journey, okay, is what he's referring to here, fully giving up your life for Christ. Very, very few actually do that for their entire life. I mean, very, very few. Now, but this part will have eternal life in the world again. He's not saying that's how you get eternal life. He's saying that uh, the glories of heaven uh, will be much more for people like that. Okay, the rewards will be much greater. Okay. Oh, and this part about... Uh, uh, verse 27, what is impossible for people is possible with God. Uh, what Christ is talking about here is that uh, God can take anybody 
any greedy materialist and remove his love for gold and substitute it for true love of the Lord. That is the miracle of divine grace, where God can remove the vices that we have in our lives uh, and replace it with divine love. Okay? Next, uh, Christ uh, predicts his death again, verse 31. Taking the twelve disciples aside, Jesus said, Listen, we're going up to Jerusalem where all the predictions of the prophets concerning the Son of Man will come true. He will be handed over to the Romans. He will be mocked, treated shamefully, and spit upon. They will flog him with a whip and kill him. But on the third day, he will rise again. Uh, this part in verse 33, um, I, I've taught you before, if you haven't heard my lessons before, what that's, this, I always like to point out that, that a lot of people aren't aware. Uh, one thing the Romans did is they had something called a cat of nine tails, and that was a long leather whip. And uh, the whip would have uh, bone chips or teeth or little bits of iron embedded in it. And that was called the cat of nine tails. And when they whipped you with that, it would literally just gouge the flesh right off of a body. So that like if you're whipped on the back, you're, you're, the back of your ribs would be exposed you know, I mean, it was just a, a, a ungodly, disgusting, cruel punishment. Okay? And notice that before this happens, Christ is pointing this out. He's pointing out that he knows he will be mocked. He knows that he will be spit upon. He knows that he will be flogged. Okay? And he's teaching again his disciples this lesson. But in verse 34, they say, or verse 34, but they didn't understand any of this. The significance of his words was hidden from them, and they failed to grasp what he was talking about. That's because their time to understand this had not yet come. Verse 35, as Jesus approached Jericho, a blind beggar was sitting beside the road. When he heard the noise of a crowd going, pa going past, he asked what was happening. They told him that Jesus of Nazareth was going by. So he began shouting, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Be quiet, the people in front of him, the people in front yelled at him. But he only shouted louder, Son of David, have mercy on me. Now, notice here that here's a blind beggar sitting beside a road. And he's crying out for help. And what do the people do? Yell at him to be quiet. 
What does Jesus do? Verse 40. When Jesus heard him, he stopped and ordered that the man be brought to him. As the man came near, Jesus asked him, What do you want me to do for you? Lord, he said, I want to see. And Jesus said, All right, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Instantly the man could see, and he followed Jesus, praising God, and all who saw it praised God too. You know, there's this this simple story sticks with me. It really does. Um, matter of fact, it reminds me of Joshua in the Old Testament. Uh, Joshua made God uh, for the sun to stand still in the heavens. And of course it did. And here, uh, Jesus, who's the Lord of the sun, the moon, and the heavens, what does he do? He stands still for a blind man. And the lesson that I'm getting at here is faith. The crowd was yelling at a blind beggar to shut up because the blind beggar was crying out for the son of David. And since he cried out son of David, the blind beggar obviously knew who he was. He was the Messiah. Well, here the blind beggar cries out and Christ stands still to heal the blind man. And notice the blind man's prayer. He simply says, I want to see. And how many times throughout Scripture do we see Christ healing everyone? He even bid the demons of of legion a favor by letting them go into the pigs instead of going down into hell. And yeah, these people yelling at a blind man to shut up, it just... It just, uh, it amazes me. But Christ stood still for the blind man. That's the love of our God. And uh, to me, it's just that simple. If you truly have faith, you can see a miracle. All right, that's the end of uh, chapter 18. Um, as always, if you'd like to get a hold of me, feel free. Go to goodfriar.com. At the bottom, there's a little highlight. Uh, click on the link, and it'll open your email, and uh, you can you can send me a, send me a message. But as always, I pray to God, Yahweh, as I raise my right hand, please allow me to extend uh, your blessing to your listeners of your word. Heavenly Father, please extend your loving grace, your loving touch, your healing touch to any and all who wish to learn your truth. I extend to your children your blessing of Numbers 624-26. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and grant you his peace. In Jesus' name.
Amen. Hey, thanks so much for listening. Till next time, God bless.